Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Now, I finally today uh, started to get my evidence-based radio Twitter feed in uh, order, and so I've started tweeting there. And so, yeah, that is pretty much the place that you'll find me now is on Twitter. So you can follow me um, at evidence-based radio. And um, yeah, so that is going to be where I'm going to be during the week. Again, I have decided, as many others have, and I hope that many others will continue to do, uh, to abandon Facebook for now um, and possibly for forever, but definitely for the short term. um, I don't particularly want to uh, do anything that helps Mark Zuckerberg with really anything. Um, And so there's a whole host of reasons why I think uh, not engaging with Facebook that much is a good idea. So that is my plan. And of course, I'm not saying that Twitter is better. It's just new and different. So I'm not as um, burned out by it yet. (laughs) Um, So anyways, let's start off tonight with Another fun update on what is now called COVID-19. Obviously, this is not a fun update. It is a very serious issue, and um, it is hard to deal with um, when we're dealing with so many other things right now. Uh, But it is definitely something that we should talk about, even though um, I'm going to say it over and over again right now. We are very fortunate that um, in the United States, we are at a very low, low risk of um, having any kind of infection with the disease. Um, And the only people who are really at risk are people who are in direct contact direct contact with people who have been in China or have been um, in close quarters with someone who already had the disease. Now, the infection has now killed more than 2,000 people, um, but it is still hovering at a uh, very low rate of fatality compared to other um, large uh, coronavirus outbreaks such as SARS. And so a new study in the journal And the Chinese Journal of Epidemiology looked at 72,314 cases of confirmed, suspected, clinically diagnosed, and asymptomatic cases through February 11th, and these came from throughout China. They found that 80.9% were classified as mild, 13.8% as severe, and only 4.7% as critical. Now, the most deaths occurred in uh, those over 80. And so obviously people who are older with um, less of an immune system, they're obviously much more prone to be killed. 
Um, people with cardiovascular disease are the most likely to die of complications, followed by those with diabetes, chronic respiratory disease, and hypertension. One of the really interesting things about this particular outbreak is that the virus seems to have spared the majority of children. There have been no deaths among children up to nine years of age, despite, in fact, two cases of newborns infected by their mothers, but both have recovered or are in the, in the process of recovering. Now, as has been true from the start of the outbreak, those under 40 have an extremely low death rate at 0.2%. Those in the 40s have a 0.4% fatality rate. Those in their 50s, a 1.3%. In the 60s, a 3.6%. And again, over 70 having an 8% fatality rate, so much higher. Um, men are more likely to die than women at 2.8 versus 1.7%, uh, respectively. And so, again, though, the overall combined fatality rate remains low at 2.3%. But, of course, even such a low percentage, uh, as we very well know, means a lot of people. And it has actually killed more than 2,000 people at this point, which is not a small amount. And so while this infection is much more contagious than SARS, again, it doesn't have nearly as high of a fatality rate. And so uh, nearly 10% of those who were infected with SARS uh, died. Now, um, on the other side, this year's flu in the U.S. currently has around a 0.1% fatality rate. But because so many people get the flu, um, this small fatality rate still means that between 14,000 and 36,000 people have died. Now, of the cases that have been studied, 86 can be traced can trace their orig origins to Wuhan, where 64% of severe cases among medical staff have been confirmed as workers from Wuhan. The percentage of severe cases among Wuhan medical staff has gradually decreased from 38.9% at the peak on January 28th to 12.7% in early February, the report notes. Now, while the disease has begun a downward trend since the 11th, there is still the possibility for both a rebound as people return home from the Lunar New Year holiday and that the virus may adapt over time and become more virulent. And so uh, they are warning doctors to remain vigilant. And so again, this is not a um, emergency here in the US, but it is still an extremely serious disease. And we should still be very um, interested in keeping a hold of it as best we can. And um, allowing health um, workers to do what they need to do in order to be able to actually track and contain the disease as best they can. And so here in the U.S., we have confirmed cases in seven states, uh, with a total of 15 people having been confirmed as having uh, the virus, and 52 are still pending. Now, one of those confirmed cases was in the state of Massachusetts, there was a Boston resident who returned from Wuhan and uh, was confirmed to have been infected. However, he quickly sought and received medical attention. 
We are grateful that this young man is recovering and sought medical attention immediately, said Massachusetts Public Health Commissioner Monica Barrell, uh, MD, MPH. Massachusetts has been preparing for a possible case of this new coronavirus, and we were fortunate that astute clinicians took appropriately quick appropriate action quickly. Again, the risk to the public from the 2019 novel coronavirus remains low in Massachusetts. Okay, so uh, let's move on for now because uh, there's not really any point in dwelling too much on this. Um, There are a lot of other existential threats out there. We're not talking about any of those either because... um, I think that it's important sometimes just to focus on the good things. And um, so I think that we need to balance being aware of the bad things that are going on um, and focus on where we can help. And so right now, the best thing to do uh, for this virus is to not panic, uh, not um you know, don't engage in any kind of um, ostracism of people who look Asian. Um, there's been a bunch of that going on, especially in Europe, which is terrible. Um, you know, you have no idea where someone is from just by looking at them. Um, you know, even someone who looks clearly Chinese or Japanese, they could be a third generation uh member of the country in which they're living just because they are still have traditionally um they still have the uh look of their ethnicity doesn't mean that they're automatically from wherever their parents are from and um that's always a very frustrating thing and i think that it's one of the um things we don't talk about as much when we talk about things like racism um obviously one of the things that I think that a lot of people, Asian people, um, worry about or have problems with is that people are constantly asking them, oh, where are you from? Um, and it's like, I'm from New Jersey or I'm from Massachusetts. I was born here. Um, and it's just that assumption that they couldn't possibly have been born where they were, where they are now, um, is a very big frustration. But anyways, we are getting off topic. (laughs) I was going to move on to talk about dinosaurs, which, as you know, is a uh, topic of um, great interest here at this uh, show, and hopefully with you as well. Um, Before I start, I'm going to I'll just tell you, I was in CVS the other day and there was a kid's book about dinosaurs and I didn't get to the end of it. So I don't know if it continues to be this way, but I read the first couple of pages and it was scientifically incorrect and I was very upset. (laughs) Um, They were trying to say that the brontosaurus didn't like to eat green things. And of course, a brontosaurus would be a um, vegetarian, would have eaten... um, you know, vegetation, which, you know, last time I checked is mostly green. And um, it's just a small aside and it's a silly thing. But I think that it's important to uh, remember that you can tell good stories while also having real science. Um, And so, yeah. Anyways, again, we're sort of uh, meandering tonight and I apologize for that. Uh, So let us talk about this new story about dinosaurs. And so, of course, they're always a fascinating and distracting subject. 
So new research suggests that the answer to the long-debated question of whether dinosaurs were cold or warm-blooded is that they were, like their modern ancestors, actually warm-blooded. And so the researchers looked at the chemical composition inside fossilized dinosaur eggshells and found that they indicate that the animals were indeed warm-blooded. Our results suggest that all major groups of dinosaurs had warmer body temperatures than their environment, said geophysicist Robin Dawson uh, and at the time at Yale University and now at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. What we found indicates that the ability to metabolically raise their temperature above the environment was an early evolved trait for dinosaurs. And so Dawson and her team examined approximately 75 million-year-old eggshell fragments from dinosaurs found in Canada, including the large herbivore Myasaura um, piblosaurum and a smaller bird-like Truodon um, or Truodon formosus, though um, it turns out that the classification on that dinosaur is a bit in dispute. Um, but regardless of that, that doesn't affect this research. And um, we've talked in great length in many a show about how uh, classification is hard and taxonomy is um, not an exact science, even though it's literally meant to be an exact science. <laughs> um and so they also looked at a 69 million year old eggshell found in Romania uh, that belonged to a dwarf titanosaur sauropod. And so the researchers used a technique that analyzes chemical bonds in the ancient carbonate mineral, which composes the fossil eggshells called clumped isotope paleothermometry. And so this technique looks at the atomic ordering of carbon and oxygen isotopes in the molecular lattice of the material. How they are arranged indicates the temperature at which the material was formed. So in the case of dinosaur eggs, this would be the internal temperature of the mother. And so the team found that the samples all indicated that the body temperatures were hotter than their surrounding environments, which means that they were endothermic rather than ectothermic, which of course means that they were capable of generating heat rather than relying on external heat from the environment. They found that the dinosaurs ranged from between three to six degrees Celsius warmer than the environment, with one sample topping out at a whopping 15 degrees warmer. And so this suggests a broad base of evidence for dinosaurs to have been generating heat through metabolic means rather than absorbing heat from the surrounding atmosphere. Our inferred dinosaur body temperatures combined with previous work on oviraptosaurs and large-bodied sauropods indicate that representatives of all three major dinosaurian lineages exhibited elevated body temperatures relative to environmental temperatures, suggesting that a capacity for metabolic control of internal body temperatures was ancestral for dinosauria, the authors wrote in their paper. These dinosaurs exhibited at least some metabolic control over their body temperatures to raise them above ambient temperatures independent of their body size. And so it is another uh, really great indication that it is time to put away the old idea uh, that dinosaurs were slow-moving, cold-blooded, lizard-like animals uh, that died off completely in the past. We now know uh, that they are very much uh, active 
they were very much active. They were almost certainly warm-blooded. A lot of them probably had proto-feathers. And of course, they did not go completely extinct. Uh, Their ancestors are with us today in the form of birds. Okay, so let's turn now to a completely different kind of animal mostly completely different. (laughs) Um, And so we've actually talked about this animal before, uh, but we're back to talk about them again. Uh, And so this is the Ulm, uh, Proteus anguinesis. Um, And so it is an amphibian that lives within caves in uh, Eastern Europe. Now, again, like I said, we've talked about them before, uh, and so that was back when some of some of them were actually hatching in a cave in Slovenia. Now, they've been called dragons because of their long, slender bodies and short, stumpy legs. Uh, it makes them look actually similar to Asian depictions of dragons. But that's kind of where the sim- similarities end. Olms are weird. Um, They have pinky translucent skin, uh, tiny eyes that are actually covered by patches of skin. Uh, So they normally live in pretty much pitch black conditions, so they don't really have any need for a keen sense of of sight, Um, but instead they have a keen sense of smell. Uh, They have underwater hearing and they can detect motion. Um, and so along with the, the aforementioned long, slim bodies and stumpy legs, uh, they're weird. And part of the reason that we talked about them when uh, some of the eggs hatched back in back a couple of years ago in Slovenia was because they only breed every 12 years. <laughs> and so um, these salamanders are uh, troglobites. Um, which is a creature that has adapted to permanent living in the dark recesses of caves. And they're actually referred to by Charles Darwin as wrecks of ancient life. Um, And so uh, they're kind of the more homely cousin of the axolotl. Um, And so, of course, the axolotl is just like absolutely adorable. And you can't not love an axolotl. I was really excited. I was in Toronto a couple of uh, weekends ago when we went to the uh, Royal Ontario uh, Museum and they actually had an aquarium that had an axolotl in it. And I was very pleased. Um, It was next to some really awesome frogs. (laughs) And so that was fun. Um, Between 2010 and 2018, researchers studied olms in a cave in eastern Bosnia-Herzegovina. And so they captured, tagged, and recaptured a number of the creatures and found that at the site there were 26 adult olms. And they found that across the eight years of the study, they didn't move much. (laughs) The majority of recaptured individuals moved less than 10 meters or 33 feet during several years, wrote zoologist uh, Gergely Balazaz from Etvos Lorand University and uh, colleagues in the paper. Um, there's going to be a lot of hard names tonight. Um, I'm going to be talking about a lot of different places, um, including Australia in a little bit. So I apologize in advance for all of the uh, mispronunciations that will um, take place during the uh the um, period of this show tonight. 
And so one of the big things was that one individual was found to basically be in the same spot uh, 2,569 days later, or just over seven years. (laughs) But this isn't a total surprise to the researchers. Ohms are also known for their extreme lifespans, with many living up to 100 years. And so the footlong creatures are hypothesized to have such a great lifespan because of their habit of doing, well, very little. The creatures have a very low metabolism. And so while they eat snails and crustaceans, those foodstuffs aren't particularly abundant in the caves in which they live. So Ohms can survive for several years without eating anything. They also don't have any natural predators. Uh, And did I mention the only breeding once every 12 years? And so uh, when they do breed, though, they produce a clutch of around 35 or 40 beautiful eggs. Um, They're translucent. They're very gorgeous, which is part of why um, people were interested in them the last time around. Uh, But unfortunately, they also have a very low success rate, with only two out of 500 eggs successfully leading to new ohms. And it's not impossible that the individual moved around during those seven years before returning to the same spot, but the researchers say that it's possible that he's just been there the entire time. This group actually has low genetic diversity, which suggests either a recent shrinkage in the population or a high level of inbreeding, which of course would be suggestive of the fact that they don't move around very much. And so the Slovenian Olms actually had a higher level of genetic diversity. So um, that suggests there might be something specific going on with this population. We can only speculate that animals feeding on a very low food supply, reproducing sporadically and living for a century are very energy cautious and limit their movements to the minimum, the researchers wrote. And so, of course, some of us probably envy this slow, uh, long lifestyle of these little salamanders. Um, But unfortunately, as humans, we do tend to need to be a lot faster and do a lot more in our lives. Um, And so uh, let us shift to talking about ancient humans for a moment, because they were doing a lot of stuff. (laughs) They were going a lot of places and they were doing a lot of things like they were not sitting around in a cave waiting for a a crustacean to come their way for seven years. And so tonight we're going to talk about um, Australia's Aboriginal people uh, who arrived from Asia uh, at least 65,000 years ago, uh, or at least we kind of think that's when they got there. Um, There's been some trouble with dating, um, and we'll talk about that actually in a slightly later story. Um, And so At the time, it was the supercontinent of Sahul, uh, which encompassed the modern bounds of mainland Australia, Tasmania, and New Guinea. Now, the current inhabitants of the island have a deep history, but we know very little about the first people who settled on the continent nonetheless. And so a new paper published in Nature Communications by S. Anna Florin, a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland, with archaeologists Andrew Fairbanks and Chris Clarkson, also at the University of Queensland, reports on the analysis of charred plant remains from the archaeological site of Majabebe, which is a sandstone rock shelter in Mirar 
Mirar country, which is in western Arnhem land. And so they found the earliest evidence of plant matter, which was consumed by humans outside of Africa and the Middle East. And so this gives us important insight into the diet of these early Aboriginal people. In the earliest layers of the site, there is a lack of animal remains. However, because the plant remains were charred in ancient cooking hearths, they survived the ages. The researchers used a simple technique of immersing the samples in water, where the charcoal pieces being rather light, float to the top of the water and are easily separated from the rest of the sediment in the samples. They found the remains of fruit pips, nutshells, peelings, and fibrous parts from tubers and fragments of palm stem. Today, the Medjabebe rock shelter and the surrounding area are still considered a culturally and economically significant area for the Marar people. And I am happy to to be able to report that the researchers actually worked closely with modern-day members of the culture in order to bring together both indigenous and scientific knowledge. They had help from tradition owners and research colleagues, May Nango and Dejaykuk Dejanjomer, who helped them identify modern-day plants that would have been a part of the ancient people's diet. They noted that there are that there are foods ranging from very easily eaten fruits to the much more labor-intensive plants such as the man kindjek or cheeky yam, which requires several processing steps including cooking, leaching, and or pounding before being able to be consumed. And some of this can take up to several days. Using microscopy, the team was able to identify the ancient remains by comparing them to modern foodstuffs. They identified two kinds of wild plums, canarium and pandanus, pandanus nuts, uh, three types of, root, of roots and tubers, including one that is aquatic and two types of palm stem. Now, several of these plants fall into the category of those which require extra processing in order to be edible. And so this would include peeling and cooking of roots, tubers, and palm stems, pounding palm pith to separate its edible starch from the less digestible fibers, as well as the laborious extraction of pandanus kernels from their hard droops. Interestingly, the, the researchers were actually able only to do this last thing to actually get those kernels uh, out of, a, of the droop using a modern electric power saw. Um, but apparently, uh, the traditional way to do it is with a mortar and pestle. Um, <laughs> and so they also found evidence of seed grinding by noting microscopic traces on grinding stones found in the same layer of the archaeological site. Now, again, this is the first evidence of such an activity outside of Africa. In addition to the food remains, the site has also yielded other evidence of the highly advanced culture, which became the earliest Aboriginal peoples of Australia, or at least part of them. Now, the site has yielded the oldest known edge ground axes in the world. And so with these different items, the researchers were able to paint a picture of a people who were investing time, labor, and acquisition of knowledge in finding plant starches, fats, and proteins, and processing them using advanced tools. And so this suggests that an older theory that people migrated through Southeast Asia just basically eating shellfish and fishing uh, for these sort and 
eating basically really easy foods isn't really supported by this evidence. Okay, so uh, we do have to take a break now. And then uh, we will come back to Australian Aborigines and we'll talk about some other, another um, group and their tale of a volcano. So do stay tuned for that. Uh, I'll be back in just a few moments. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We'll have all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2am Sunday morning. Check us out. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Thanks to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. And we are back. And as advertised, we are going to stay in Australia. And so we are going to, again, be switching to another uh, set of Aboriginal peoples, uh, because much like Native Americans, Austra uh, Australian Aborigines are not a monolithic people. Um, they have many different uh, cultures 
And so, you know, it's not just one culture. And so this story concerns the Gundit Jamara people who traditionally live in southwest Victoria. Now, you may have heard of the dreaming before. This is the oral tradition of the Aborigines of Australia, and it is considered to be extremely old. Um, and it is a, it is considered to be a continuous oral tradition. Um, you know, some people might dispute some of that, but um, the dreaming is definitely uh, considered very uh, much to be a um, extremely important and extremely rich oral tradition of these people who have a very long um, continuous occupation of this land. And so in one tale um, of these people, there is an an ancient oral tradition which tells of how an ancestral creator being transformed into the fiery volcano Bunj Bim. Now, new research suggests that this may in fact be an oral tradition documenting a volcanic event around 37,000 years ago. This would make it the oldest story ever told on Earth, at least that we are aware of. If aspects of oral traditions pertaining to Budge Bim or its surrounding lava landforms reflect volcanic activity, this could be interpreted as evidence for these being some of the oldest oral traditions in existence, the researchers, led by geologist Aaron Matchen from the University of Melbourne, wrote in their study published in the journal Geology. Now, because the Aboriginal people did not uh, have pottery or make permanent shelters uh, when they first arrived in the area of Australia, finding archaeologically significant sites with good samples is actually quite hard. Um, so that was why we were talking earlier about the sort of, uh, you know, back and forth on this 65,000 uh, date. And so uh, only six sites have been definitely dated to older than 30,000 years using radiocarbon dating or optically stimulated luminescence dating of ancient charcoal and sediments from the rock shelters that they actually used. Again, archaeologists believe, though, that they may have inhabited the continent for much, much longer. And so recent advances in dating techniques have been brought to bear for this latest research, which used argon-argon dating to date volcanic rock in the southeast landscape. And taking that info and pairing it with cultural knowledge, they believe they may be able to tie the oral tradition to the actual event. The oral traditions of Australian Aborigines peoples have enabled perpetuation of ecological knowledge across many generations, providing a valuable resource of archaeological information, Machten and study co-author David Phillips explain. Some surviving traditions appear to reference geological events such as volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, and meteorite impacts, and it has been proposed that some of these traditions may have been transmitted for thousands of years. Now, the team dated samples from a lava bomb hurled from an extinct volcano 25 miles away from Bujbim, called Tower Hill, along with a sample of lava flow from Bujbim. 
they found that the eruption most likely happened in close approximation, with lava dating from 36,800 plus or minus 3,800 years for Tower Hill and 36,900 years plus or minus 3,100 uh, for Budge Bim. This suggests that the Tower Hill's eruption date uh, or eruption age directly constrains a minimum age for human presence in Victoria. And so the other piece of corroborating evidence is a single stone axe called the Bushfield Axe, which was previously found buried beneath a layer of volcanic rock and ash from this same eruption. And so this doesn't mean that the oral tradition of Budge Bim is a specific reference to these explosions, but it is definitely an intriguing link. We in the West have only scratched the surface of understanding the longevity of Australian indigenous oral histories, archaeologist Ian McNevin from Monash University told the journal Science. And speaking of volcanoes, uh, sort of switching gears here and moving uh, back to or moving to America, um, but still in the vein of volcanoes, you may have heard that there were recently uh, volcanic eruptions on Lake Michigan. Okay, not true volcanoes with lava, uh, but a rather eruptions of slushy ice caused by a particular set of cold winter weather. They're created by powerful waves pushing under the ice on the surface of the lake. As the pressure builds up, water and slush burst from any available fissure. If the weather is cold enough, the spray freezes and builds up a volcano-like cone around that original hole or crack, and it can those can actually reach over 25 feet high. <laughs> It needs to stay cold enough to keep the ice around, and waves need to be large enough to force water upward against the ice, sh ice shelf. Colt Svoltven, a Grand, Grand, Rapids, Grand Rapids meteorologist, told the Detroit, Detroit Free Press. So while they're not true volcanoes, they are still a wonderful and weird weather phenomena, um, and they don't come around that often. So I thought I would make sure to uh, talk about them so you can look for pictures. Um, I think that I uh, linked to the tweet, but I will double check. And so, yeah, it is very, very cool to talk about, to um, find out about that. I think it's really neat um, to have these incredible, uh, just weird uh, ice volcanoes. <laughs> okay, so we are actually going to roll back around to archaeology now. And uh, we are going to talk about um, kind of a sort of meta-level um, archaeological uh, idea, but I think it's a really interesting one. And so uh, this is a theory that suggests that some archaeological sites that have not been considered early cities really should be. And so tradition tell us, tells us that the first cities arose in Mesopotamia some 6,000 years ago, in what is now Iraq, Iran, and Syria. Cities like Ur and Sumer uh, eventually um, became sort of the, the ones that people know about, um, though there were earlier ones. Um, and these all arose after the beginning of agrarian farming. And they had a very 
specific set of features. They featured centralized governments, a development of complex bureaucracies to track and tax farm production, and had tens of thousands of people living in close proximity to one another, connected by roads and living in neighborhoods, pretty much like any city today. The big thing about cities is that they were a hotbed of the development of social stratification with rulers, bureaucrats, priests, farmers, and slaves. And so that's our traditional idea of what makes a city a city. However, over the last decade, an alternative to these cities has begun to emerge as a contender to share that title. These settlements are called megasites. One such site is currently near the Ukrainian village of Nebelivska, and uh, where there are the remains of a large settlement from around 6,000 years ago. These were low-density spread-out sites, but archaeologists like John Chapman of Durham University in England suggested they represent a different kind of city life. Now, the Ukrainian megasites were built by the Tripilia culture between around 61 and 5400 uh, years ago. They tend to cover a square kilometer or more, and some are actually larger than Manhattan. Chapman, along with Durham colleague Marco Nebia, an independent Durham-based scholar, Bezirka Gedarska, uh, believe that these megasites would have only had a few thousand inhabitants, but they also lacked a class of ruling elites. Rather, these sites were organized to promote shared rule among an egalitarian community. And so one of the things that they point to is that it gives good evidence that social structures structures did not have to immediately become stratified as they did in other settlements. And so at least two dozen megasites have been discovered in Ukraine since the 1970s, when Tripilia was discovered between the southern Bug and Dnieper rivers. Researchers at one site have excavated around 50 houses over the last 25 years. But, Chapman notes, they have another 2,150 houses to go. And so, uh, appearing in the Cambridge Archaeological Journal, Chapman, Gedarskia, and Nebia have reconstructed the entire layout of the settlement. Over six years of fieldwork, they have excavated and mapped the structure of Nebelivska over more than a square kilometer. Aerial photos, satellite images, and geomagnetic data were combined with 88 sondages, or test pits, which led to the investigation or identification of 1,445 residential houses and 24 communal structures that have been dubbed assembly houses. The houses, many of them have been actually been burned. These were grouped in 153 neighborhoods containing an average of three to seven houses. These, in turn, were grouped into 14 quarters, each with one or more assembly house in the area. Over 200 years of occupation at the site, uh, uh, sorry, um, Over 200 years of occupation, the site was both a home and a ritual site, where the researchers have found homes were ritually burned at various points during the occupation. 
And so basically the way that they figured this out was that they built a house uh, based on what they were able to uh, find from the archaeological remains. They built a replica house and then they set it on fire. And um, the researchers actually found that when they did that, uh, the house did not burn fully and it didn't burn in to create the kinds of um, ash piles found at the actual sites. And so they actually ended up having to add a large amount of extra timber in order to cause the entire house to burn and thus to recreate the ash piles found at the actual site. Uh, they also did check to make sure uh, that there was no evidence in the area of wildfires at the time. So it is almost certain that they were deliberately set. Burning a house down in this way created a spectacle that could be seen for many kilometers away, Chapman says, um, which again suggests that it was ritual. Um, and so it's very clear that people were burning houses and then still living in the area, building new houses. Um, and so there must have been some um, important reason for why they were doing this. It wasn't just, uh, you know, they were all burned in an attack and then the place was abandoned. Uh, there's clear evidence that this was done over time and that people were still inhabiting the area even after uh, certain houses had been burned. And so, as previously noted, there are no signs of a ruling dynasty or any kind of upper class. Uh, houses were fairly uniform, and excavations have found few prestige goods, uh, very few things made of copper uh, and shell ornamentation. Uh, and so there was, however, a large amount of painted pottery and clay figurines, which are trip are typical of the Tripilia culture, along with more than 6,300 animal bones that suggest a diet rich in beef and lamb. Chapman suspects that around two to 3,000 people would have lived permanently in up to 400 houses at the site and most likely came from 10 regional groups known from the area. They may have had a council composed of members from the different groups or have rotated which group made decisions over time. Nebia, on the other hand, believes that between three and 4,000 people would have lived at the site for around a month each year. During this season, the people would have made new contacts, shared knowledge and goods, and conducted community activities such as ritually burning houses and building new ones. Only about 100 to 150 would have been full-time residents to make sure that everything stayed okay in the area. Now, Gaydarska favors the idea that Nebelivska was a large center for religious pilgrims, where for roughly eight months, pilgrims would travel to the site and between 1,000 and 2,000 of them would inhabit the site each month. Ritual leaders would have maintained the settlement and conducted the inhabitants to the communal work of burning and building houses. But all three agree that earlier interpretations of the site suggest a level of habitation that was much too high. Earlier archaeologists believed that the large central space in the site would have actually held settlements, but the trio argued that this space was not actually inhabited. They found no evidence of habitation there. 
Now, it's not just in Eastern Europe that such uh, mega sites can be found. There are also sites in Asia, in other parts of Europe, and in the Americas. And so they are now classified as low-density urban settlements. Uh, or they, they're becoming uh, classified as that as more people realize that they should really be called urban centers. Now, some later sites, uh, like at Greater Angkor um, and Mayan cities, did feature social stratification. Um, but researchers are starting to believe that there was actually a greater amount of egalitarian settlements than once thought. And so, for instance, ceremonial centers in China and Peru, for instance, had sophisticated urban infrastructures before the advent of social stratification. And I think that the Peruvian um, example is, um, I'm forgetting um, what the name of the people were, but I think it's the people who were associated um, with the Nazca lines, um, because not only did they create those amazing um uh, petroglyphs, um, but they also, or geoglyphs, I should say, those amazing geoglyphs, they actually also had really impressive, um, huge ceremonial centers that were just amazing, um, huge pyramid uh, um, platforms. Like it was just, it was incredible. They were an extremely um, advanced people. And I think that they were actually uh, fairly egalitarian. Um, their pottery is also amazing. Um, they were just a really amazing uh, group of people that don't get talked about as much um, as, say, the Maya or the Inca, and it's unfortunate. But anyways, um, of course, as we've already heard, uh, truly understanding the activities at such sites can be problematic, and not everyone agrees even with these findings. Nemalivska may be an interesting example of a ritual, ceremonial, or defensive gathering place rather than an all-purpose city or a distinctive pathway to urbanism, said archaeologist Monica Smith of UCLA. She favors the more traditional view of cities as being areas of dense population with a hierarchical structure. She, she, she suggests that these are instead, quote-unquote, collective settlements rather than true cities. She believes the oldest city is Tel Brak from around 6,000 years ago in modern-day northeastern Syria. And so the next challenge in Ukraine is to find out why the Terrapillion megasites arose and fell after just a few hundred years. So for instance, this site lasted for about 700 years. Uh, right now, we don't have a good question to that answer. A good answer to that question. Um, and uh, one of the other things that cities did was that they kind of uh, persisted for longer than that unless they were sacked um, or destroyed by outside influences. And of course, whether they were cities or not, they clearly showed that large amounts of people could inhabit an area without a social hierarchy that included winners and losers, which I think is the thing that people are really trying to uh, point at. And so again, it's this idea that uh, the sort of social stratas that we have today, people are trying to say that this wasn't inevitable, that we could have gone down another path. And um, it's frustrating to see that people uh, tend to not believe that that is a true thing and that they tend to believe that this was just inevitable. And so I think there's some pushing back against that. 
Okay, finally tonight, let's quickly talk about uh, some news again out of UMass uh, Amherst. And so uh, Derek Lovely, a microbiologist at UMass, and his colleagues discovered more than 15 years ago a bacterium called Geobacter, which shuttles electrons from organic materials to metals to, to metal-based compounds such as iron oxides. Ever since, they've been studying bacteria, including Geobacter, which make protein nanowires in order to transfer electrons to other bacteria or sediment in their environment, which creates a small electric current. Now, obviously, they've been working on turning this into a clean energy device. Two years ago, grad student Liu Xiaomeng found that sometimes the isolated nanowires spontaneously generated current. His advisor, UMass electrical engineer Yao Zhu, was initially dubious, but they discovered but they discovered that when they sandwiched a thin film of nanowires between two gold plates uh, for electrodes and left it out, they could consistently get power for at least 20 hours. And the device could recharge itself if you made the top plate smaller than the bottom plate to expose the nanowire film to humid air. After a series of experiments, they found that the humidity was the key uh, to the generation of electricity. They found that the nanowires worked best in around 45% humidity, but could function in conditions as dry as the Sahara and as humid as New Orleans. And so that is according to the team's paper in the journal Nature. And so they say that the trick is a moisture gradient, which develops when the top side of the film absorbs moisture. Droplets constantly diffuse in and out of this top layer, which can disassociate into hydrogen and oxygen ions, causing a charge to build up in the top of the film. The difference in charge between the top and the bottom causes electrons to flow and thus generates electricity. At least that's the idea. Some researchers are uh, skeptical, to say the least. Um, others uh, have attempted to generate energy via similar means and failed. Um, and so that, of course, makes people uh, wary. And some point to the fact that the nanowires taken from Geobacter may be of different compositions. So it's not clear if they would all work the same way and exactly what is going on there. Others say they don't really see how the moisture gradient actually produces a clear source of electrons. So we'll have to see how this develops and if we really are seeing the birth of a science fiction-like clean energy source, or just another interesting experiment that ultimately doesn't lead to commercial applications. Either way, I think it's really neat to think about bacteria that produce electricity, and of course, how we might turn that trick to our own advantage. Um, because anything that we can do to uh, produce electricity in more sustainable ways is a good thing. And it is a thing that we should be working on uh, steadily and with lots of funding. Okay, that is all the time we have for this week. Uh, please do come back next week uh, where we will talk about more science. Uh, have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.